Last week and today, we're discussing the biblical church, her service. Last week, part one. This week, part two. What do the members of this body do? What do they do? What is their service like? What does it look like? What does Jesus expect from the members of his church? Last week, we said that a member of the church of Jesus Christ would worship the God of the Bible. He would be repenting and believing in the gospel. He would be baptized. He would commune with the Lord in his word and prayer. He would be faithful to his local church. Well, our point's for this morning, and I don't have much time, so I'm going to go through them quickly. Number six, make shepherding a joy for your leadership and profitable for you. Make shepherding a joy for your leadership and profitable for you. Hebrews 13, 17, the the pastor author who wrote Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So in what do you obey your leaders? Well, go back with me to verse 7, where the writer says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. If you are not sitting under sound teaching, under legitimately above-reproach leadership, there is the strong likelihood that you will embrace strange teaching. And friends, this often is manifested in the life of the person who says, all I need is the Holy Spirit in my Bible. Once I have that, I'm good. And the church, that's nice too. I like those Christian people. They're a whole lot nicer than the people at the bar. But I've got God in my heart and my Bible. That idea is arrogant beyond measure and completely refutes the entire concept of biblical leadership. You say, well, what am I supposed to obey? The teaching of the Word. How can you obey the teaching of the Word if you're not here? How can you obey the teaching of the Word if you're not being discipled? How can you obey the teaching of the Word if you're not involved in the development of your spiritual gifts? And for us, that is the family group environment. How can you do that? And so what are you doing? You're abandoning the teaching and the leadership and your responsibility to submit to the leadership and therefore it will be unprofitable for you. Leadership is to be above reproach. I met with the shepherds on Thursday night. We meet together on a monthly basis. We go through the scripture together. We talk about how best to minister to the flock, how to shepherd the people of God. And I looked at the men and I challenged them from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I said, men, you must live with a clear conscience. If you don't have a clear conscience as a leader who is called to be above reproach, as a man who is called to the office of overseer, that you must be above reproach, as 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 says, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Paul says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. 
and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You see, that's what a leader in the church of Jesus Christ must be. He must be above reproach. He actually must have a good testimony in the community, not be the guy who's constantly sticking his finger in people's eyes with religious stuff, taking the Bible and saying, well, it's true, you better believe it. But he lives a careful, gentle, honest, righteous life. And people know that about him. And this is what is required of a leader in the New Testament church. And friends, this is what is required of a man in the church of Jesus Christ at the Anchor Bible Church. We don't play games with this. And so we require that men in our leadership confess sin one to another if there is sin. And let me just be candid with you. I have been the object of that confrontation. I should be. When there is sin, when I have sinned, it needs to be addressed. If one is concerned about me, it needs to be addressed. And I not only receive that, I long for it. I long for that. You need to know that about your pastor. You need to know about that about the men in our church. That if they're going to lead you, they must be committed to receiving confrontation about the conduct of their lives. In fact, they must long for it. And the minute I begin to sense that a man is not interested in my concerns about his life, I'm thinking it's going to be a long time before he would ever be considered for being responsible for the souls of the Anchor Bible Church. Let's read it again from Hebrews 13 so you understand the seriousness of this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You must take this literally. If you've been involved in a church where it wasn't apparent, it wasn't evident, and there wasn't much effort being made by those who are concerned about the fact that they will give an account. That is not a church you want to be involved in. I have far, listen, I have far, far, far more concern about the fact that I will give an account than the fact that you might be thinking I'm a little too amped up about this this morning. I'm not. I'm not. Your soul matters. It matters so much that I must tell you what you must hear in order for me to be a responsible shepherd of your soul. And if you're not getting this vibe from your family group shepherd, then you need to go to him and say, I'm not sensing that you care enough for me to tell me what I need to hear. A true shepherd will be far more concerned for his sheep than he will for whether or not he offends them from time to time. And it must be a joy. It is to be a joy. For those who are in Christ, they long for this to be a joy for their leadership. John says in 1 John 1, verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. 
John wrote truth so that people would read it, believe it, implement it in their lives, and that he would experience that joy. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How can the Anchor Bible Church do that if you are off doing your own thing? We can't have unity with people who will not serve in the worship service, serve in discipleship, and serve in the family group. Unity is absolutely impossible. And Paul says, make my joy complete by maintaining that same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How can you know what the purpose of the church is if you're not here, right? Number seven. Number seven, Jesus expects his church to take the Lord's Supper regularly. It's pretty simple. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this as often as you drink it. Do it regularly. It's, a, it's an ordinance in the church. You're commanded to do it regularly. One person complained to me some time back, saying, how come we don't do it every week? The Bible doesn't command that we do it every week. We're commanded to do it regularly. So we do it regularly. We try to keep it fresh. We try to focus on the Lord's table, on the Lord's supper, on what it means to be reconciled to Christ, on what it means to symbolize that in our uh, remembering him in the Lord's table by doing it once a month and by God's grace, it seems to have been very, very helpful to do it in that pattern. You say, well, you know, I've missed a lot of those. Is it a big deal? Yeah, it's a huge deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. So we, because we have asked for there to be a rotation in our church of service in the children's ministry, we've asked everyone to consider serving in the children's ministry two out of every six weeks. Serve in the children's ministry for two weeks, and then be in the worship service for four weeks. We don't expect everyone to do that from the beginning, but that is the design. Well, of course, that means that for two out of every six weeks, you're going to be out of the worship service, and very likely you're going to miss a Lord's table, so we provide what we call the supplement service afterward, and each one of our shepherds will give oversight to that on occasion. So we're giving you the opportunity. We're trying to make it easy for you to obey Jesus Christ in this command. Number eight, number eight, Jesus expects the members of his church to give joyously and generously and regularly. To give joyously, generously, and regularly. Get the idea of the tithe out of your mind. The man who teaches tithing either doesn't understand what tithing was, or he does, and he doesn't care, and he knows he can beat people over the head with it and tell them, you must tithe, it's a command. It's not a command in the New Testament. It's not a command in the New Testament. You say, but it is a command in the Old Testament. Okay, if you're going to stick with that, then you need to start giving 23 and a third percent. 
It's 10% given to one division, 10% to another, and another 10% to be given every third year. That's 23 and a third percent. Friends, that's what the tithe is. Now, why is it, then our, it that in our day that pastors who manipulate people with this idea don't command that they give 23 and a third percent? Because they know that that would be unreasonable and nobody would do it. I say 10% is a great starting place if you can start there, but some of you can't. How unreasonable for us to strap you, to strangle you with an idea that's, number one, not a command in the New Testament, not given to those devoted to the New Covenant. How unreasonable for us to expect that of you, and how unkind for us to do something about it if you don't. I know of a church in Lancaster where I'm from where tithing is required and they check it. They ask you to, on an annual basis, submit a check stub so they can check your giving against that. Well, of course, you know you would never need to be concerned about that here. What are we concerned about? We're concerned that you hear truth about giving. And we trust that the Lord is going to produce the conviction in your heart. If you're in Christ, Christ is in you you will be convicted when you hear truth and you will give regularly and joyously and abundantly, generously. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. For every good deed. Do you budget? Do you set money aside? Do you give first? You say, well, some months I don't have enough. You're to give first. You know what the problem was with Abel's offering? It wasn't that it wasn't an animal sacrifice. That was not the problem. It was that it wasn't of the first fruits. It is a joy for me knowing that I have the ability to write that check when I receive my paycheck. The first thing I do, I think you need to know this, without thinking about anything else, is write that check. And yes, many, many, many times I think I'm not sure where the rest is going to come from, as do you. But this is what the Lord has commanded of us. This is why it's incumbent upon you to figure that out. Not for the church to tell you it's got to be at least 10%. You know how much money you make and how much you need to live. You know what the, the possibility of you giving in a way that's sacrificial is. The Lord has given you the intellectual ability to determine that so that you can give freely and joyously. And maybe on occasion you give more. And maybe on another occasion you can't give any. And the Lord sorts all that out. But you're to be faithful. What about the person who's been without work for six months or a year? And now he's got work, and it's been two months and four months. What's he doing? He's playing catch-up from a long, difficult time of having to borrow money here and there and, and live on little, and that's a good time in many cases. But we're not going to require you to give something that you yourself haven't determined in your heart we only require that you respond to what the scripture teaches and that's that you walk by the spirit and give what you've determined and i don't want to know that's not my business to know that that is between you and the lord number nine 
Number nine, Jesus expects from the member of his church that you will use your spiritual gifts to strengthen the body of Christ. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says it this way. Listen to this. Listen, listen closely to this. 1 Peter 4, 10. As each one has received a special gift. It's your grace gift. It's a gift of grace. God gives them by grace. You are to use them by grace. Peter says, then employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So what's your gift or your gifts? See, I don't know. I'm going to explain to you next week how you can determine that. I'm going to walk you through the gifts, and I'm going to explain the biblical process. No, not that process in that workbook that you bought whenever you bought it that has 140 questions in it and then a test at the end. That is a bad, bad method. And many times it's wrong. But there is a biblical method. And you, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're not going to be too surprised by what it is. But you need to understand from the Scripture how you would determine what your gifts are. And you can do that. And your use of those gifts will change, but your gifts won't. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. In verse 7, he says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you don't serve with your gifts in order to get something. You serve for the common good of the body. You say, well, how can the whole body benefit from my service? Well, it just does in the same way that a part of your physical body, when it serves, benefits the entire body. That, isn't that metaphor great? makes it so easy for us to understand how this works. Number 10, number 10. Jesus expects the members of his church to evangelize the lost. He expects the members of his church to evangelize the lost. And by the way, this doesn't mean that you tell everybody you ever meet about Jesus. It does mean that you would be sensitive to the Spirit of God, sensitive to the person, and in the natural flow of a real-life conversation, know when and when it is not appropriate to bring things up that that person might be interested in. The command in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, is that we be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us to everyone who asks. It doesn't mean that you can't express that hope. You should express that hope. You should be looking for opportunities to express that hope. But it's not your responsibility, nor it is mine. In fact, it's detrimental to be making an effort to tell everyone you ever meet the gospel. You're looking for the development of relationships. And the whole idea of going out in the streets and preaching the gospel, I don't have anything against that. And if you feel called to do that, then by all means do it. We are called to evangelize people to the church, to discipleship within the church. What does it look like? Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is four things. Number one, make disciples. Make disciples. Your relationships with people should be discipleship relationships. There should be interaction. You're talking about things of the Lord. You're talking about what that looks like in real life. You're dealing with struggles. You're dealing with sin. You're dealing with manifestations of praise. You're talking about what the Lord has done in your life. You find great joy in hearing how someone came to Christ. You want to know more about that. You want other people to know more about that. There's an interaction. 
One person strengthening another, and that person strengthening the one. Second, baptize them. Disciples will be baptized. This is about as easy as it gets in terms of obeying Jesus Christ. He says, do it. We must do it. A person comes to know Christ, as far as we can tell, we must baptize that person. If a person says, well, you know, I just, the water, you know, it's too cold, and I don't want to, you know, get the, my shirt all wet, and my hair, my makeup. That would be women saying that, right? Not men. We're to baptize disciples. You say, but I got a medical condition. Well, we'll work through that. That's a very reasonable concern. But disciples are to be baptized. Three, we are to teach them to obey Christ, right? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We teach them to obey Jesus Christ. And friends, again, listen, please hear me when I tell you this. I'm not on some soapbox about this. I'm not riding a dead horse. I'm trying to tell you that there are many pseudo-churches in our culture, in our community, that are committed to telling people that you just add Jesus to your life. Pray him into your heart. Make a decision for him. And then there is no expectation of any degree of obedience to Jesus Christ. And so no matter what the area of sin, there's a stamp of approval because, well, I was there when he prayed that prayer, and it all comes down to that. Where's the, that idea is not even in the Bible. It's not even in the Bible. And yet it becomes the central issue of whether or not someone knows Christ. And if we love people, we will tell them, do away with that moment in time where you made a decision. And set your sights on 2 Peter chapter 1 that tells us how you can know whether or not you're of the elect. It's a command. Did you know that? To know whether or not you're of the elect. 2 Peter chapter 1. Read it today. Not remembering a, you know, a time when you, know, you were in your dorm room in college and you know, a guy kind of walked you through a prayer and you repeated it and you really meant it. That's me. It's written in my New American Standard Bible from when I was in college. This guy led me through a prayer, and he wrote that prayer out in the front of my Bible, and he had me sign it, and he signed it. And what did that say? It said, Todd Barnett is a Christian because of that prayer he prayed, and the idea is not in the Bible, except it's in mine because he wrote it in there. <laughs> Fourth, under evangelizing the lost, we will remember that he is with us. That means everything. Somebody posted a video on my Facebook page last night, which I have since deleted, where this guy goes on and on and on and on and on about the fact that the atheist should really believe that God is real because I know he's real because I feel him. Again, not in the Bible. You say, but what about when the worship is really wonderful and I just feel wonderful? Well, you're feeling wonderful, but you're not feeling God. Friends, God is spirit. You cannot feel God. You are not called to feel God. And what's the, the constant argument against that? Well, you don't know how I feel. <laughs> I felt that way. I don't know that anybody gets more emotional than I do when it comes to worshiping the Lord. You say, well, you don't raise your hands and all those other things. No, but I'm really emotional. It's hard for me not to raise my hands. Ooh, did I say that out loud? 
it's hard for me to restrain myself when I worship the Lord so as to not be a distraction. But true worship of the Lord brings about emotion, but the emotion is not the basis. The emotion is the byproduct. The emotion is just one expression. Friends, I can be deeply thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and not be emotional about it and not have that feeling. And guess what? When I don't have that feeling, guess who is still here? He is still here. We don't attest to his presence because we feel it. We attest to it because his word says, remember, he is with you. We ought to have the heart attitude of Paul the Apostle when it comes to evangelism. Paul says in Romans 9 verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I could be accursed. I could have it that I would give up my salvation and receive an eternity of torment for those that I love. Friends, that, that is a perspective on evangelism based in election that loves people and says, I don't understand it all, but I know both are true. And so he gives his life for people. That's what a Christian does. And then in chapter 10, after the, the most clear and lengthy didactic treatise on election in the Bible in Romans 9, Paul then says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And he's just explained election, and you can't explain it away. You have to say it's the basis for evangelism. And too many people say, well, you're either an evangelistic church or you're a Calvinistic church. You're only really an evangelistic church if you are a Calvinistic church because you know that God will save some, and you're dependent upon it. And you're not dependent upon your persuasive ability to kind of twist people into a decision or a prayer. You believe God will save some, and you know he will use your faithfulness. Paul goes on to say, for I testify about them. Listen to this. Tell me if this doesn't ring true with regard to people that you know that are in Arminian churches that are doing everything they can to twist people into decisions. Listen to this. Verse 2, he says, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Is that true? Of course it's true. You know that's true if you've been in an Arminian church. They have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. And that's the problem. They pretend to teach truth. And they say things that are partially true. And they pull passages out of context. And they water down other passages. And they don't really study to understand a passage within its context. And so what happens? It's dependent upon them to get people to make decisions. And what happens then? They get people to make decisions in the flesh. So then what happens? They got a church full of unbelievers who think they're believers because they made a decision. We must care about your neighbor who is dying and going to hell but thinks he's a Christian because somebody said to him, you know, just pray this prayer. You've got but one life to live to do that. And you don't know how long that is. John Calvin said, Since we do not know who belongs to the number of the predestined and who does not, it befits us so to feel 
as to wish that all be saved. Now that is the pastor who had a compassionate heart for people that most people in our Christian era treat with immense unkindness because they know nothing about his pastoral life. And they don't know anything except what they've been erroneously told. Many times, absolute lies about what John Calvin taught. Let me just say this. Calvinism is not the teaching of John Calvin. Many times you'll hear people say, well, I don't follow a man, so I don't follow Calvinism. Calvinism is not about the teaching of John Calvin. Calvinism is a nickname for a biblical soteriology. It's a nickname for how people actually get saved. It is the result of the sovereignty of God. It is the fact that people who are totally depraved dead in their trespasses and sins, are made alive. That's scripture, right? People who are made alive, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. It is irresistible grace that when God saves someone, when God causes someone to be alive, he can't make himself spiritually dead. It is focused on the perseverance of the saints. The primary issue is not once saved, always saved. That kind of oversimplifies it. The fact is that Jesus said, you will be, uh, if you know me, you will obey my commands. That's the perseverance of the saints. A person's salvation is proved by his life. Friends, that's, that's Calvinism. And that's what we're calling people to. But see, a man-made theology calls people to make a decision and then live ever, however in the world you want to live. Because you pray to prayer. Well, with these messages, really what we're trying to do is show to you from the Scripture that church membership is not only helpful, it's necessary. It's necessary. Let me ask you this. How am I to shepherd you if you won't publicly and wholeheartedly devote yourself to the Anchor Bible Church? How am I to care for you in such a way that I can respond to the Lord when I am held to account for whether or not I have cared for your soul? How can I be responsible? Where, if not that, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? Do I shepherd the universal church? That would be a reasonable response if you said, I don't need to join the church. Would it be those who attend on occasion? Okay, how do I know how to shepherd them? They show up every now and then. Would it be for those who come regularly to the worship service, but they're not subjecting themselves to the leadership of the church in a family group and in discipleship? I don't even know you. I can't because you won't allow me to. You won't allow the leadership to get to know you. How can they possibly shepherd your soul if you're not subjecting yourself to them? If you're not submitting to the leadership who is to teach you the word. Listen to what Jonathan Lehman says in his, his tremendous book called Church Membership. He says, a church is not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. It's a representation of the kingdom, and he says it well. A church is not the kingdom. It's an outpost or embassy of that kingdom. What is an embassy? It's an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. It declares its home nation's interest to the host nation, 
and it protects the citizens of the home nation living in the host na nation. What does that sound like? It sounds like we are in the world, but not what? But not of the world. So an embassy represents one place in another place of the globe. But what if I told you there's another kind of embassy, one that represents a place from the future? That's what the local church is. It represents the whole group of people under Christ's lordship who will gather at the end of history. A Christian citizenship, Paul tells us, is in heaven. He even calls us fellow citizens with Israel, which is interesting when you consider what citizenship meant in Israel. Unlike Israel, however, Christians' homeland is nowhere on planet Earth. We're strangers and aliens. Christians must look forward to their homeland. They wait for the day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But hold on. There is a place on earth where the citizens of heaven can, at this moment, find official recognition and asylum, the local church. What is a church member? It's someone who walks through the embassy doors claiming to belong to the kingdom of Christ. Hello, my name is Christian. The embassy official taps a few keys on his computer and then says, Yep, I see your records here. Here's your passport. The individual can now enjoy many of the rights, benefits, and obligations of citizenship even though living in a foreign land. But not only that, and here's the crazy part, the individual becomes part of the embassy itself, one of the officials who affirms and oversees the others. To be a church member is to be the church, or at least part of it. A church member, therefore, is someone who is formally recognized as a Christian and a part of Christ's universal body. That's not to say that churches always get it right, but it's their job to identify and affirm who belongs to the kingdom and who does not. The embassy-like authority of the local church gives individuals who mouth the words, I'm with Jesus, the opportunity to demonstrate that those words mean something. The local church guards the reputation of Christ by sorting out the true professors from the false. End quote. I find that to be a rich expression of the church of Jesus Christ in a lost and dying world. Well, in this two-part message, I've told you that we would look at what Jesus expects from his church so that we as a local church may serve him faithfully. And we've talked about 10 things. We've said that a member of the church of Jesus Christ would worship the God of the Bible. He would be repenting and believing in the gospel. He would be baptized. He would commune with the Lord in his word and prayer. He would be faithful to his local church. He would make shepherding a joy for his leadership and profitable for himself. He would take the Lord's Supper regularly. He would give joyously, generously, and regularly. He would use his spiritual gifts to strengthen the body of Christ, and he would evangelize the lost. Father, as we close our service this morning, we ask that you would give us great joy in endeavoring to honor you with our lives. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, the God of the Bible. We thank you that you have given us new life, that we would repent and believe in the gospel. We ask that in our time today and throughout the week, in preparation for next week, that you would give us the strength to be faithful. Give us grace, Lord, that you would be honored in our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.